Welcome to the Mile 99 interview series with your hosts, Greg Larkin, Mike Turner, and Jessica Harris. Enjoy this episode, and we'll hope to see you on the trails soon. Welcome, everybody. Uh, my name is Greg Larkin. This is the Mile 99 interview series, and it is our 23rd episode uh, of our live interview series and podcast. And uh, what we do every week, sometimes every two weeks, other times, uh, is we, we talk to different ultra runners um, and other people from our community and find out about them, about their stories, uh, maybe how they got involved in running, um, some interesting facts about themselves, what makes them tick, uh, race stories, training, all these types of things. And uh, we have a different type of episode tonight. We'll get into that. But first, I just want to welcome my co-host, uh, Jessica Harris and Mike Turner. Hey, Jessica, how are you doing tonight? Pretty good. How are you? I'm doing all right. Excited for tonight. We got a lot, lot to talk about. Mike, how are you doing? Doing good, everybody. Good, doing good. So as Greg was talking about, we started this early in the year when we first began and the country was locked down and all of our races were canceled and running groups were canceled and it was too risky to hang out with people anymore. So we started doing these interviews as a way, like Greg said, to stay connected with our community and, you know, interviewing local trail runners in our area and hearing their stories and staying inspired and motivated. And this talk tonight is really going to be really hits the inspirational zone with just kind of getting excited and inspired, you know, and uh, it's going to be great. And as Greg said, Jessica is here uh, on the interactive portion. We're live on Zoom. We're taking, she's taking questions on Zoom. There's a chat room. You can post a question there. And near the end of the show, uh, last 15 minutes, we'll go through the questions and, and, and read them and then get some answers there. So we're on our Facebook page. Uh, and uh, so you can, uh, but ideally you'd put questions on the Zoom chat if you can. That way they're easy to organize there. We want to mention a couple of our friends of the show, the aid station, some friends of ours in Auburn. They have a local actual brick and mortar running store. They sell shoes and such. They have an online website as well. Check them out. Also, our good friends, Monsters of Massage. If you are a trail runner, you know Monsters, you know Veloys. If you have any aches and pains, they will keep you going. They have availability. Even today, they had some spots open. So don't forget about them and bring your mask, of course. Greg, back to you. All right. Thanks very much. Well, tonight, uh, we're very pleased uh, to be talking to the team who recently completed a trek from the Donner Memorial State Park up uh, near Truckee uh, in California, up near Lake Tahoe, to Johnson's Ranch in Wheatland, California, uh, just outside of Sacramento. And this is about a total distance of 100 miles. Uh, the team tonight that we have is comprised of Bob Crowley. Uh, he's the current president of the International Trail Running Association. We have Tim Tweetmeyer. He's the current vice president of the Western States Board of Directors. Jennifer Hemmen, she's an experienced ultra runner and adventure racer. And we have Elka Reimer. She is an ultra runner, a mountain explorer, a trail steward, and a preservationist. And altogether, this team of four comprises the modern day Forlorn Hope Expedition Team. Uh, and on behalf of all of us uh, at the Mile 99 interview series, we just want to welcome you all and appreciate you guys all taking the time uh, to join us tonight uh, after just finishing your 100-mile trek through the mountains, uh, through some incredible conditions, 
uh, and you you just finished this past weekend, and it's only been a few days. Uh, so we just really really want to thank you for joining us tonight. So welcome to the whole team. Uh, if you all just want to say a quick quick thing to to bring you into the into the session here, I guess we'll start with you, Bob. Yeah, well, th well, thank you guys. You know, it's a real honor to be here, and um, <clears throat> I think we have a diverse audience tonight. I, I'm gonna. I'm just looking. Was looking through the squares and recognizing a lot of names that we've known from the past, but also new friends that we've made on our Facebook page over the last few weeks at Forlorn Hope Expedition. So I welcome everyone, um, and some of them are from around the world. We have some people here that are uh, from Australia and uh, the UK. They're up late or up early. And um, we appreciate it. And it's, it's going to be a different night tonight because this is this is normally for ultra runners and runners and trail runners. But we have historians, we have uh, relatives of the Donner Party and, and the Relief Party. We have people very interested in American history and great uh, um, <clears throat> history tales as well as athletes and, and all of that. So it should be a, a wonderful and interesting evening. Uh, just a pleasure to be here. Absolutely. Thank you. And uh, welcome to you, Tim. Yeah, thanks, guys. <clears throat> Just glad to be sleeping indoors again. <laughs> and uh, I don't have to sleep with Bob anymore. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll get to the snoring later. <laughs> uh, Elko, you're up next. Uh, how are you doing? I'm doing great and so happy to be here with you guys. Um, pretty sure that Tim wasn't talking about snoring, but I'm sure he'll get into that. Oh, okay. <laughs> hey, Jennifer, how are you? I'm doing great. And uh, the fun continues, I tell you. I, I In in some some small ways, the, the morning after the trip ended, I I was in my bedroom and I farted and nobody laughed or said <laughs> And I was like, God, I miss those guys. At least they, you know, react <laughs> when I did. <laughs> you just, you, get, you come from this very intimate place and, and no one really wants to talk with me as much about Forlorn Hope as you four, you know? So <laughs> I'm, I'm really glad to be here and it's, a, it's been a, a, a great experience. Oh, that's so awesome. I, I, I think we can already see a little bit of the team dynamic going on here. So that's great. <laughs> and we'll, we'll definitely talk about that. Um, you know, one of the things that I think would be really good just to kind of set the stage, um, you know, I, I've talked to people uh, only in the last week or so who uh, really didn't know about the Donner Party even. Um, and I don't know when I first heard about it. I mean, I lived on the East Coast and I think I just through hiking or, or just being out in the woods, you sort of talk to people and maybe the Donner Party comes up at some point. But there are people out there that don't even know the story of the Donner party, never mind the forlorn hope party. So Bob, I was hoping you could just kind of give a brief overview of the Donner party and then maybe move into a little bit about the forlorn hope party. Yeah. Happy to do that. And I'll play uh, tag with Tim on this one. Yeah. Uh, we'll bounce it back and forth, but the, you know, the Donner party um, was, was the last party to come across uh, from Springfield in the year 1846. And uh, everyone made it over the pass, uh, immigrating to California, mostly from the Midwest, Independence, Springfield, that area, except for the Donner Party. And they, they were delayed because they, uh, a, a bunch of things happened. But one of the major things is they followed a cutoff, a shortcut called the Hastings Cutoff, which was an ill-fated decision. And it was supposed to be shorter and it ended up adding two or three weeks more to their trip. Then they got to the lake and it was uh, early 
uh, October snowstorm, they were unfamiliar with the kind of snow that falls here in the Sierra. And so it would clear and it would snow and clear in the snow and kind of fool them into thinking they could still make it. They tried four times to get up and over the Donner Pass and they failed each and every time and ended up getting stuck, all 87 of them, either at the lake, uh, which is where most people know, because that's where the, where the state park is. But they also, the Graves family was uh, about a quarter mile away uh, <clears throat> off of uh, where, where the high school is now, the Truckee High School. And then the Donners themselves and Jacob Donner and George Donner and his uh, troop were actually six miles away. A lot of people don't know that way back at Alder Creek. It's another story as to why, but it's suffice to say 87 people trapped by an early winter storm, unable to get up and over the pass. And for that year, 1846, they were the only party not to make it to California and not to make it all the way to Sutter's Fort, which was their destination. I'll let Tim pick it up from here. Okay. <clears throat> so they got there October 31st, uh, stuck at the lake and spent about six weeks making those uh, attempts over the pass and were never able to get through the snow. They always came back for one reason or another, but the snow was too high for them to progress um, past uh, Summit Valley, which today is labeled Van Norden Meadow. And uh, it's so the, the conditions there kept getting a little more bleak and a little more bleak. And they knew people were going to start to die. And if they didn't make it out and get help, the whole bunch probably would have perished right there at the lake. So um, Franklin Graves, one of the older members of the bunch out there, he's 57 at the time, crafted uh, 15 pairs of snowshoes and uh, thought, well, that might be the ticket out to be able to have snowshoes get through the pass. So on December 16th in 1846, him and uh, 16 others started around the lake and over the past, two people turned back. And uh, so they had a group of 15 that made it over the pass and started their way down towards uh, Johnson's Ranch, the 100 mile trek. And uh, unfortunately they made a wrong turn a little ways into the trip and it made it much more complicated and difficult and longer. And uh, of the 15 that started out, only seven made it to Johnson's Ranch and uh, there's a lot more in between on that stories of where they went and why they went and how they, they survived. But uh, in general, that's the, the quick summary on, on the forlorn hope. Yeah. That's, and, that's... and I'll just add one thing that, that, that if the forlorn hope hadn't broken through, it's, it's not certain how many of the people at the lake in the Donner party uh, would have perished about 55, 57% of, of, of the 87 lived. So there was a, a lot of death regardless, but if the forlorn hope hadn't made it through seven of them and ultimately let people know on the other side that there was a party trapped, it's possible that uh, um, three quarters, maybe more of the Donner party could have perished. So <clears throat> what's interesting about this story is the forlorn hope is very, uh, uh, they're not nearly as well known as, as the Donner party. And of course, it's a subgroup of Donner party, but they're, they're heroes. They broke through, they somehow found um, the will and, and the ability to survive just ungodly odds. And we'll talk about that tonight. And seven of them ultimately made it, got word that there is all these people were trapped back at the lake and ultimately that's when they mustered the relief groups. There were a total of four 
to try to go back and save them. So this is a great American pioneer story about you know, what we consider to be legends. Um, that is a story that is little, um, little known in America. And we hope to help educate people on these wonderful human beings and also this fascinating story. Yeah, I mean, I, I, it just, it's part of the whole mythology, I guess, of the, of the American West. And uh, yeah, I personally had never heard about it. I think uh, when we talked to you, Bob, um, a couple of months ago now, maybe when we were interviewing you solo and you, you talked about this uh, project, um, obviously we were very interested at that time, you know, to, to bring you back. And we're so glad that you're all back here now. Um, can you talk a little bit about how long it has taken you to plan this? Uh, cause I, I think it's been in the works for quite a while. Let's let, uh, Elka or Jen, Jen, uh, Jennifer, they, they know, they, okay. they know. The yeah. Team. They've heard. Okay. Great. Yeah. Elka, you want to take this one? Well, I, I mean, I know that, that Bob and Tim have been working on this for the past seven years to various degrees. I mean, reading everything they could possibly get their hands on. Um, and most importantly, just talking to everyone they could and then boots on the ground over the summer, really researching the, the route that they think, um, checking off boxes, what, what could have been and what absolutely could not have been based on all of their research. So that, that work on the ground really saved us this mm. last week, especially, <laughs> I mean, in several areas, but I can't even imagine what it would be like to out, be out there wandering, not really knowing where we were going to go. And especially in particular, that first river crossing, they, um, they did us a, a, <laughs> a huge favor by setting ribbons for our course up that first North Fork, uh, massive climb on day three. So uh, their homework really, really paid off. It helped us to not get lost ourselves and helped us to quickly reroute if we felt that we were you know, slightly off course, which happened a couple of times. And uh, we just picked up really quickly and, and kept going. So their research has, has been very pinnacle and paramount to our success for sure. Well, Jennifer, I know you and Bob and Mike and I were all out at the Euchre Bar Massacre earlier this year and, and getting oh. some experience on some of those trails. Like, how did that translate once you were out there and actually doing the trek at, you know, a later time in the year, especially to much colder, much harder conditions? It translated directly. And I have to say that, I mean, I'm a pretty spiritual person in that when Bob, well, when Megan called me and Bob sat down with me over dinner to explain to me his, the route that they looked at and what they were thinking about, I felt it was perfect timing that I'd just done Yucca Bar Massacre because I could imagine right away in my head what a group of young, I mean, these people were 17, 19, 21 years old. They're starving, they're freezing, they're lost. They have no leader uh, who knows where they're going. And they were in the North Fork. I could immediately put myself in their position and say, I, I really wanna do this trek and I want to picture from point A to point B how they did it. So Euchre Bar directly translated that sense of um, that even if you have a good compass bearing, even if you know there's a ridge up there you're gonna get to, you feel very disoriented. And it's it's no joke, it's straight up. It's straight up holding on to things and you can't explain it to people who aren't there. You can take a picture and when they look at it, they say, that looks all right. And you're like, no, that's a 45 degree angle 
if I let go of that tree, I'm going to fall backwards. People don't understand it. And I was able to put myself in the shoes of the forlorn hope by having done the Eucobar massacre, you know, going up and down those hills six times, um, attempting for the fastest time to beat the other teams was was really directly translated to to this route. So yeah. it, it's amazing. Uh, the work that Tim and Bob put into this uh, was super helpful, like Alka said. Um, and I think it mattered that we'd all uh, been there at one point, seeing the North Fork as a place that no matter how much you think you know it, you still get turned around. Yeah. And to uh, Jen, what were we joking about a little bit? Well, so many. The Euchre Bar Sampler. <laughs> yeah. We have a name the Forlorn Hope, the Euchre Bar Sampler. It's for people that yes. just want to try it. Yeah. Who <laughs> calls it the Euchre Bar Mini? Tim, is that what you call it? Is he muted? He's muted. Yeah. We, we call it like Euchre Bar Light, you know? So. We're, we're hoping to maybe parlay that into some historical trail trekking for people that want to come see it sometime. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Tim, I don't know if uh, you're not muted on Zoom, but we can't hear you. So I don't know if there's an audio issue on your end or not. Um, yeah. I mean, like you said, it, people don't really appreciate it till they've seen it. I mean, I've been out there multiple times with Mike and other people and um, yeah, those slopes with the slippery oak leaves and just the branches and the, Manzanita and I know you you ran into all, all kind, kinds of obstacles out there and then I mean to top it off when the forlorn hope party was out there my understanding I mean it was a heavy snow year so you can even imagine like even more snow than than you all ran into and and just the difficulties of getting through that that area I, yeah it's it's remarkable that anybody made it up that hill yeah um can just since we're on that quick topic there of the North Fork. I know that at one point in the route, there is the marker that you put down on, on your track, which was the wrong turn. Um, can anybody talk about, about that and, and what happened to the original team at that point? Yeah, I'll, I'll try to take that. So, you know, one of the, and maybe just, just context as to how we um, go about identifying these various key points along the 100 mile uh, trek you know, wrong turn, um, camp of death being two. Um, we, we studied primary, uh, whatever primary research was available, and there's very little. Uh, Willie Meddy kept a diary, but, but his entries were, were scant given that he was starving to death and um, in great distress over the 33 days. So uh, he was interviewed by Sinclair, um, Quinn, uh, but, <clears throat> but Quinn Thornton, but ultimately, we, we looked at whatever primary and secondary research we could get a hold of and then began to read the authors and the articles. And a lot of the uh, accounts of the Forlorn Hope were in conflict with each other, different days, different incidents, different places, different mileage. And so what Tim and I resolved to do was to, to put it all in a spreadsheet and compare and contrast it and then literally go out kind of mile by mile and go look at it ourselves and look at the descriptions and see what matched and what didn't. And <clears throat> what we found in some cases, some authors were very strong or good in some stretches, and then um, they lost their way and others were good in other areas. For uh, the wrong turn, there was a lot of consistency. 
And so we got very confident fairly early that we had it zeroed down to probably within an acre and, uh, and continued to narrow it down based upon the descriptions we had. It's, it's at the end of Six Mile Valley, which for those that drive up and down I-80 is uh, the Lang Road exit, L-A-I-N-G road exit. And uh, if you were to take that exit and then kind of head east and south, you would eventually get into the wild of the North Fork of the American River and what's called Burnett Canyon. And deep in that, uh, in buried amongst this gigantic forest, it's, it's a haunting place, is um, you know, where the Camp of Death is. So those two go hand in hand. The, the, the wrong turn is where the land slopes to the southeast. And uh, they should have gone to the Northwest at that point. Why didn't they? Well, th there's three reasons. There's a hill there that blocks their view. And it, so it obscures what is behind the hill, which is the Bear Valley itself. And that's what they were looking for. But unfortunately, when they got to it, they'd lost their leader, Charles Stanton. He, he, he stayed behind. He couldn't go on any longer. The two young Indian Miwok Indians, Luis and Salvador, didn't know the way. And they certainly had never gone uh, in this direction. They'd only come over with Stanton and they'd never seen it in the snow. And they got hit with a hundred uh, year snowstorm. So they had no dead reckoning because they couldn't see the sun. Uh, th their view was obscured. And so, and they were starving to death. And so they did what every human being would do is they took the easy route and the easy route sloped to the Southeast gently. And that sloped them right into the, the throat in the teeth of the North Fork of the American River. They never saw the Bear Valley. They never saw up and over into Immigrant Gap. Um, and of course, once that happened, there was no going back because they really, it took them days to realize they were actually lost. And by that time, the idea of turning around and going back and the horrible way they came was untenable. Mm. Just incredible. Yeah. And, and, and such a fateful turn. I mean, if they had not made that wrong turn and somehow had proceeded over the hill, I mean, can you talk about how much easier it might have been for them? I'll take that as a newbie here. Yeah. Fortune <laughs> and Bob have to do this all the time, but uh, me, I've never said this to them before, but just in terms of educating myself, I went out there every weekend to, to do areas by myself with my dog to see how I would feel, uh, put myself in the shoes and put myself in the shoes of, of Tim and Bob as well. And one of the most emotional parts for me was getting on I-80, getting off at Evergreen Gap at the, the, the Vista area. You can get off this very public Vista area. It's a parking lot and you get out of your car. And I turned around to look behind me. And sure enough, there's just a small hill with trees, but on the other side of that, I've been hiking the week before, and that small hill completely obscured the gap. And looking back, I couldn't see the North Fork place they'd gone to, but when I looked down over the edge of the highway with the, with the highway barrier, there was this beautiful, gentle valley just stretching all the way down into Sacramento. And I started to cry thinking, they just made that one mistake. They just needed two more days with Stanton for him to direct them over that. And they just completely missed it. And mm. walking in their shoes, doing the same thing, I completely missed it. And I never would have thought to go that way. 
Wow. So it was very emotional to see this beautiful, flat, welcoming valley. And then what they went into ultimately, I could already imagine. And it made me cry to think about all the lives that were lost and the children and the fathers and the mothers who had to know their children were going to die. Yeah. Um, just because of that single wrong turn. So faithful. Yeah, uh, and it's so easy to see. Yeah, just to get you an idea how... Good, you're good, Tim. To give you an idea how simple that is, when you go, um, you know, they call it Bear Valley right there at Highway 20 and 80, right down in that hole. Mm -hmm. And Johnson's Ranch is on the Bear River outside of Wheatland. So it literally just drains right down, literally trickles down the hill, and you're just in this big V all the way through until you get to Johnson's Ranch. And that errant turn took him into the, one of the steepest river canyons in California, Yeah, which only complicated their their issues. Wow. Unreal. Um, since Bob touched on it um, for a second there, uh, the Miwok um, involvement in the party, Tim, I was wondering if in your research, uh, you could talk a little bit about the importance of the Miwoks and other tribes uh, that assisted, you know, along the way with the Forlorn Hope Party. Yeah, I'll, I'll tell you, we, we did a did as much as we could in there. The two Indians that came back with Stanton after they had gone ahead to get food and bring back to the lake were Miwoks, which is, I believe, a little bit south of where um, generally the the path is. Uh, but they had been uh, working at Sutter's Fort and were assigned to Stanton and go help him get food back. Um, but as the uh, as the bunch ended up getting back to Colfax, they crossed the American River, North Fork of the American River twice and got back towards Colfax. They fell onto a, a a Nissanen village there, which is kind of uh, one of the sub-tribes of the, of the Maidu, I believe. And um, they were actually what really shepherded them the rest of the way because they were really falling apart at that point. And uh, when, when Bob and I tried to do the research on that, we went down to the Maidu Museum down in Roseville and asked those folks, and they turned us on to a couple books and we read those. And from some of that research that we did there, our, our, we, we kind of mapped two things on the route, the route that we took and the route that we think the actual forlorn hope took as they made their way down. And it was our um, kind of just supposition that uh, they would have been shepherded right down the Bear River from one Maidu village to the next until they got to the um, Johnson's Crossing or Johnson's Ranch there. Because uh, they did do several hops there from one to the next to the next. And you know, Colfax to Johnson's Ranch is probably 35, 40 miles, depending on which way you go. So they were a uh, you know, really guided in that last, uh, you know, at least third of the journey by by the local Indian groups and and fed for sure. Mm -hmm. And as we know, the there was only one person that made it to Johnson's Ranch on their own power, and that was William Eddy. The other six had fall, finally given up outside of uh, probably somewhere on the other side of Camp Far West or along the Bear River. And uh, the Indians shepherded the, uh, Eddie to the to the Ritchie household where um, he kind of presented himself at the door and the young woman broke out crying as, as his appearance. And then they had to go back and uh, follow the bloody footsteps back to the rest of the bunch to find the other six and shepherd them um, all along the way um, with the little first little rescue crew. But yeah, had the local Indians not uh, been able to get Eddie there, it'd probably been a different story. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, the contribution there uh, is, is also something just to, to kind of celebrate and, and talk about, I think. So it's, it's important to, to hear all of the sides. And, and that's certainly a key factor for their success, it sounds like. Um, for anybody you know, on we the about this story a lot, that, that it always comes full circle, right, for some reason. And it just so happens that I live just off Maidu Drive. And there's a Maidu burial ground on Maidu Drive less than a mile from my house. So it's, oh. it's kind of karma. karma. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 
uh, for anybody on the team, um, can you just give us a timeline of when, like the day around the date that they left the Donner party encampment, got all the way to uh, Johnson's ranch. And then by the time the rescue teams got back, like what's the total elapsed time there? Do you know? Yeah, <clears throat> the, the the forlorn hope were, we're hoping to, to reach Johnson's ranch in uh, six to eight days, 10 at the outset. So they gave themselves six days of provisions, which was only 600 calories per person per day. And the reason they did that is because they were already starving at the camp and they didn't want to take anything more away from their family members and all the children. And so they took the minimum amount they had, unfortunately, because they got lost instead of it taking six to 10 days, it took 33 days for them to reach Johnson's ranch. They starved as a group four times, four times uh, with a minimum of four days at a time. So four to six days at a time, they starved over and over and over and over again. Uh, it's, it's remarkable uh, that they even, I mean, if they were just laying down, it's remarkable that they lived through that. But, but uh, as we just experienced, they exposed themselves to incredible uh, physical feat. Now, the relief parties were then alerted on this 18th of January, but it took almost a month to muster because we had just come from having a war in uh, Yerba Buena, which is now San Francisco and, and defeated the Mexicans. And we were now just about ready to become a state in California. We were a republic before that. And so there was lots of um, uh, action going on elsewhere. And, and many of the men that would have been called on for relief were out fighting a war. So they had to all be called back and they had to raise money. And then they had to put the team together. And ultimately, uh, they had to be brave enough to head right back into what these people had just come out of, which is an ungodly 100-year snowstorm. And if you can imagine uh, a man in this particular case that has no uh, family relations back there whatsoever, and the pay was meager, and for them to step up and say, sure, I'll put myself at, in harm's way and, and, and head directly back into this vicious situation with all the snow and altitude in the Sierras to go and try to save these people. So it took some time to find those brave humans, and they did. And ultimately, there were four relief parties. It took months, really, into February and March and April to slowly get the relief parties over. And as no surprise, those relief parties ran into their own problems, and they had their own issues and starvation and getting stopped. And so the story goes on. We're not going to get into it tonight, but there's other stories about each of these four relief parties that are, um, I wouldn't say equally as fascinating, but they're pretty darn amazing. And there are some um, heroes uh, in, in, in those relief parties, some of which we've had the privilege to meet some of the relatives of them. And, uh, you know, in future, in our future, we hope to be able to enlighten and broaden our circle from the forlorn hope to those brave people as well. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and just to think, I mean, about all those people and then the original Donner Party still having survivors after all that time is just just an incredible testament to the will uh, to survive out there. Um, Elka, well, just great, since great. Bob, even the folks at the oh, lake, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
I was going to say the the folks at the lake, right, Bob, uh, to pinpoint that the first relief party didn't get back to the lake until 60 days after the Forlorn Hope had left. So they were waiting right. at Donner Lake. And you know what it's like in Truckee for 60 days in the middle of the winter, mm. not knowing whether anybody was going to come back and save them. Yeah. One, one of the things that we Tim and I plotted out was William Eddy, who Tim mentioned, was the first to make it uh, really the only uh, uh, sort of sort of on his own power. I think he had a, a, a an Eastern Indian under each arm um, to drag him to the Ritchie home. But ultimately, he was the only one to make it to uh, Johnson Ranch on his own power about the day that he was arriving at Johnson Ranch. And of course, he was there to go back and save his wife and his young son. That was his total mission in life. About the day Eddie arrived at Johnson Ranch, his wife and his son perished. Mm. Now, he didn't know that. In fact, he didn't know that for 60 plus days. So here's a man that struggled all the way, had all this hope. And it wasn't until he joined the third relief party. He tried to join the first relief party and he just didn't have the strength. But he joined the third relief party and ultimately made it all the way back to the lake, only to find that his wife and his son had perished about the time he had arrived at Johnson's Ranch. I mean, it's one of one of dozens of heartbreaking stories. Mm, yeah. Um and, and to think how those family um, stories carry on through the generations. Um, I just want to switch over to you, Elka, because I know that there's been, I've seen people on the Facebook, on your Facebook group, descendants of these people reaching out, telling stories, you know, celebrating what you, you all did. Um, can you just talk about some of the interactions you've had with, with some of the descendants of some of the, the parties uh, that were out there? Yeah, that's one of the, the greatest aspects of this whole project, really, is to have them come out of the woodwork. Um, you know, everyone here has some stories about descendants who came forward, but uh, one of them was actually along the route. They kept following us from the top of Stevens Trail toward Placer Hills Road until they finally told us, Tim, who, who, great, 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 great aunt. Was Tams and Donner. Yes, Tams and Donner. So there was there was a couple who kept following us, and um, we stopped and talked to them. And said, "Hey, you know what's your name?" And so they told us. And uh, by the way, Tams and Donner was my great 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 aunt. Wow. And then and then just yesterday, thank mm -hmm. you social media on Instagram. My daughter, Chloe, uh, one of her high school friends, married a descendant of William Eddy. <sighs> great, 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 great grandfather. Wow. <laughs> That's so incredible. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the history and just the fact that, that yeah, those families are, are still intact and out here and, and seeing what you're doing is is just, it has to be mind-blowing. And it, and. And I know for all of you, this was really a very introspective journey, a very like solemn journey in a lot of ways. And you were carrying tributes to these people's ancestors out there with you. And Jennifer, can you talk a little bit about that and the meaning it had and, and what, some of, what some of them actually were, what some of these tributes were along the way? Really, it meant everything. It was uh, this was much less of a 
athletic endeavor. Uh, it was much more of an emotional endeavor. And we would, I mean, I would find myself when I was hiking in silence, the rare times that I actually don't talk or ask questions for people, <laughs> I would find myself thinking um, about each and every member. And I, 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 while I do identify with the women for sure, as both as young teenagers, like my daughter, and as maybe young women like myself with a, a baby back at the camp, I identified with the men just as much and tried to feel um, what they must have felt in terms of leadership and uh, responsibility for, for the others, like the father, Franklin Graves. He must have felt so responsible for his, his, his daughters and their, uh, her young husband. Um, he knew he probably wouldn't make it. Maybe he really had hoped that he would, but I think at one point he realized he couldn't. So in my mind, the whole trip uh, had sort of a, a, almost like a magical feeling about it. We would see signs, like Bob would look for signs or uh, a little story here in terms of the connection between the descendants and ourselves. We went down into Burnett Canyon uh, Bob and Keith got some water at the stream further downstream of Tim and Elka and I. We were already started up the climb up to the ridge line where we would see Sacramento from. And at the very top of this, this pretty long climb, you know, Bob reached for his phone and said, I've lost my phone. Um, I have to go back for it. And I said, well, and I volunteered to go with them back down into Burnett Canyon. And we went and I stayed halfway up the slope so I could kind of give them a bearing between us and the others. Cause God knows you don't want to take anything for granted in the North Fork. You, know, you don't get too far out of reach of your group. Uh, it doesn't matter where you think you are. You want to be able to hear the rest of your group. So Bob went down in there. He came back a while later. He couldn't really communicate because of the sound of the river covering my voice. And by the time he got to me, he said, you know what? Uh, the bad news is I didn't find my phone. Um, but I found my tracker, which he didn't know he had lost. He was calling to me and walking along a new route and looked down and saw a blinking, a, a glittery thing. It was his tracker that had been on his shoulder, which is what everyone was following. And he said that at that moment, he was all by himself away from me and he couldn't find his phone. He realized that Franklin Graves wanted his phone in order to communicate with him later on. And at that moment, he just said, I'm going to let it go. You know, Franklin Graves wants my phone. He died nearby. I'm going to give it to him. And in return, as he was walking back, Franklin Graves said, you can have your tracker back now. So that's how, that's how much we believed in the signs we were seeing. And when he told me that, I said, of course, Franklin took your phone. You know, we didn't even uh, think it was a strange thing to say. That's how much we were watching for signs. And I'll let Bob tell the second one, which Bob is as we were coming down the North Fork, we were wondering where did this deer hunt happen and what did we find on the trail coming down into the North Fork? Yeah, so part of, part of the story is um, after um, the camp of death and four, four more members died and then ultimately Jay Fosdick, who was Sarah Graves' newlywed husband passed on the Forest Hill Divide side, um, uh, William Eddy again and Marianne Graves, who's the sister of Sarah Graves, um, they saw deer tracks as the first game they'd seen in the North Fork. Um, it's a very unique area. There's very little game in there. They chased it and they hunted it and they killed it. 
Um, and that provided sustenance um, for another, you know, two, three days for the remainder of the Forlorn Hope. Um, as we were coming down Sawtooth Ridge towards the North Fork of the American River, and, and, and take us for our word, all of us have been in there hundreds and hundreds of hours in the North Fork training or scouting over the years. And we've never seen anything like this, but right in the middle of the single track trail that we were following was a, a dead deer. And it was in perfectly good order. It had been deboweled, but, but the rest of it was in fine shape. Very, very, very strange. And so again, we, we kind of looked at each other and said, well, I guess Eddie's trying to send us a message here. I, I mean, it, it, was, it was clear as, as day, uh, it's not normal. And I think, you know, we had a number of these instances throughout um, our trip. And, and certainly when we set uh, foot on Johnson's Ranch itself, um, the, the, there, were other, there were other spirits and other beings with us um, throughout this trip. There's no, no, no doubt in any of our minds. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It, just such a, as you said, like not so much an athletic um, endeavor, but more of a spiritual and emotional um, type of trek, you know, through, through, through distance and through time, um, you know, connecting to the past. Uh, and I think everybody can, can feel that in the way that you talk about it. And, and if anybody hasn't, you know, we're, we're certainly going to link all this in the, in the podcast uh, notes, but if you haven't seen the forlorn hope expedition, Facebook page, there's just some incredible pictures, incredible write-ups, uh, Bob's been posting the journals there day by day. Um, please have a, have a look at that. And obviously we'll be linking all of that in the, in the podcast. Um, now, I know that when we talked, Bob, maybe a couple of months ago, you hadn't finalized the team yet. Um, there was, you know, obviously you and Tim were sort of the genesis of this whole project. Um, and I believe uh, you hadn't completely filled the rest of the team. Um, so Elka, I just wanted to ask you first, uh, when you got that call or that message or whatever it was, uh, what was your reaction? And just had you heard about the Forlorn Hope or, or what, how did that all play out? Yeah, I had actually, and it's it's pretty, um, it's like everything else, it seems to be coincidental or was it meant to be? Let's see, 2017, I did my first sort of mini Trans-Sierra uh, snowshoeing trip simply because I wanted to face my fear of the cold. So uh, Bruce LaBelle and I actually went out and we, we started at China Wall and ended at Squaw Valley, Olympic Valley, which they call it, we call it now. But um, on that trip, Tim had loaned me The Indifferent Stars Above, which is a story of the Donner Party. And there's a whole long chapter in there about Forlorn Hope Party as well. I took that with me and read that in the evenings because, you know, you, you can't hike forever. And what do you do except go to bed when you're, you're snow camping, right? So took that with me and, and uh, fortuitously actually have a photo of the book and my whole sleep kit. We didn't sleep in tents. We just slept on the snow out there of the book and my whole sleep kit. And Bruce and I kept talking about, you know, how lucky we were that we were boarding our way from China Wall to Olympic Valley with modern day gear and what it must have been like for the Donner Party and the Forlorn Hope Party in 1846, 1847, as they were doing the same thing. 
So fast forward, Keith Sutter, our incredible photographer who documented this entire trek. Um, he and I are friends and we were meeting for, for just a catch up one evening over beers. And he told me that Tim and Bob had been talking to him about this expedition. And I said, I know exactly what, what you're talking about because we've talked about it too. The fact that they wanted to recreate this route and uh, pay this tribute. And I said, if you need any help at all, I don't care, I'll carry your snacks. I would just love to be involved. <laughs> So, so fast forward, I am, I'm in Southern California, mid-November was right around uh, my daughter's birthday, and I get a call from Jen, and I'm, I'm working remote down here, and she says, hey, when you have a minute, call me back, I have a proposition for you. So I call her back, and she starts telling me about this expedition. I said, I know exactly what you're talking about, and she asked if, <laughs> if I would consider joining, and I said, oh my gosh, absolutely. So, you know, let me just think about it. So I thought about it for a couple of days and I just, I, I, it really humbled me, first of all, the, the daunting physical aspect of it, because I haven't been really pushing myself physically this year, other than my mountain treks, which, you know, that's kind of a different story, but I'm thinking, are we running this? What's, what's the plan? Not knowing exactly that this was really going to be a tribute to the forlorn hope more so than we're going to race from point to point to point, right? So once I met with the team that Monday following the call from Jen and we, we sat and had a really good talk and, and Bob and Tim really unfolded what this was about, the crux of it. And that was truly to honor the forlorn hope, to follow in their footsteps. I said, yes, I, I absolutely want to be a part of this. So, you know, it's really kismet that this all came together in the way that it did. And you know, we, we all know each other well, um, and now we know each other much better, <laughs> but uh, the dynamics were there from the very beginning. And I just feel really, really grateful to to have been involved. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think we can all sense. Can, the, I, add, can the, I add one thing in here, Greg? Yeah. Oh yeah. Let me add one little piece here. You know, it was important for Bob and I to have uh, women on the track because uh, much like our trek, the women of the Forlorn Hope in 1846 were the strongest. All five women that started all made it to Johnson's Ranch. And uh, we thought it was important that we get that perspective. We were at my uh, cabin up in Soda Springs a few weeks ago doing our final preparations. I thought it was it's, it's a food for thought question here. And I, I really didn't have this perspective until I heard um, Jen and Elka talk about it. But uh, on, on the five of the five women in the Forlorn Hope, two were young, uh, you know, the two Graves daughters, uh, one was married, the other one was single. And, uh, but the other three women were mothers. And uh, what it would be like if you had to leave your children in the care of someone else when you knew what the conditions were like at the lake, people were almost dying. You know, they knew it was going to be pretty bleak. And to be able to leave your children behind while you're going on a trek that who knows how long it's going to take and it took them long. And then how about the perspective of the mothers that were back at the lake who now have more mouths to feed? even though they were already, everybody was pretty much already starving to death. The dilemma and the choices these folks had to make in order to uh, continue on are just brutal. Yeah, oh yeah. Like, is that something that you thought of Jennifer while you were out there? Oh, absolutely. Elk and I talked about it a lot. And for dads as well, you know, Tim and Bob are both dads, but uh, from a mother's perspective, I, I'll just get emotional if I talk about it. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, you know, 
to, to imagine being a woman in a snow cave at Donner Lake with multiple children to keep busy. You have nothing to feed them. They do have each other for entertainment, but you have no way to tell them when their mom is coming back. You, you have to continue to make breast milk for the babies. And a lot of them did. Um, yeah, it's, it's um, it, I, can, I can imagine what kind of woman could do that, but I would just love to go back in time and give those women like a, a side of beef and some onions and some like rice and, and like go back and give them a big hug and maybe a couple toys. Cause I can't imagine how that was to entertain children in a snow cave for three months waiting for their moms to come back over the hill. And to just, you know, Tim had said at one point, well, which kid do you feed your kid or their kid? Like which kids do you give the food to? And I said, I have no doubt that they just took everything. They took the shoelace soup and they probably just split it evenly because that's what a mom would do. Yeah, I mean, equal servings to every kid. But the the cries of hunger and the cries of sadness, it must. I would like to know more. I don't really know how they did it. Yeah, and and just for people to to be aware of. I mean, I, I was reading some of the the accounts, um, you know, on various websites today, and I mean, they were literally eating their shoe leather to to survive, if I'm not mistaken. They did. I did propose that as an evening meal. I, I did propose that we make some. I would like to make some. I'm interested in taking this further. I also proposed that I only eat two pieces of jerky in the North Fork, but Bob said no. <laughs> <laughs> didn't didn't fly on that one. Um, well, speaking we of enough uh, already, we didn't need jerky to get in. Yeah. <laughs> Speak, speaking of eating and all of that, um, one of the things that I, I also wanted to just talk about, because it was also an important part of your trek, I think, was the crew members that you had out there and the support. And can you sort of, any one of you talk about like day to day, what it was like coming into camp? Like, were you setting things up? Were things already there? How did you sleep? what were the arrangements, what would happen in the morning and sort of give us like a little bit of that overview with re relation to you as, uh, and the crew. Yeah. Yeah. So, so our, our, our hope was really to be able to have the headspace to focus on um, what we were seeing, what we were experiencing as, as we were going along. It was a, it was a, a trek to honor the forlorn hope, but also to, to, to walk in their footsteps, see what they saw. The terrain hasn't changed in 174 years. And to have the time to stop and reflect along the way. Now, that meant that we needed to have some help. Uh, so we have great equipment, of course, and, and, and plenty of food. But we did have a small, um, very, very professional team of both photographers, uh, Keith Sutter and Ethan Vosberg and uh, Tim's son, Austin Tweetmeyer, made a phenomenal team that provided us uh, uh, ongoing support, uh, whether they were embedded or they were meeting us uh, at key spots along the way. And, and in the future, hopefully, well, not hopefully, we will share with you um, a more thorough uh, uh, body of work from those, those uh, gentlemen, absolutely magnificent. We also had crew that drove vans and uh, provided us with food, helped us set up tents, um, anything that we needed. And they stayed in constant communications with us beyond the tracker to make sure that things were safe. Everyone was okay. Um, this wasn't a period of COVID. So we had to keep the crew small 
And we also had to uh, make sure that if anyone did get into trouble, we were not going to put any pressure on frontline people. That would be unimaginable to, to take people off the front line and have them take care of us. So we, 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 we put in place protocols to assure that that could not happen. And so, yeah, it, it was a, what I would consider to be a small, concise group of people that were phenomenal um, and expert at what they did. Scott Vosberg and, and, and Craig Thornley, uh, Marcy, my wife, uh, Kathy, uh, Tim's wife, um, and uh, Bruce LaBelle and so many others that have provided um, support to us. Chloe, Travis, uh, Jen's wife, Chloe, uh, uh, um, Elka's daughter, they, they all, you know, were there for us and made us feel safe and made us feel secure and connected. And um, that was a critical part of this because then it relieved us to be able to really focus on the task at hand because um, I, I don't want to use the word burden. We had no burden on us, but we had a responsibility. We started this thing and it was the first time, you know, when we laid those cards down at the end, all 17 of them, at the, at the post that marks where the adobe house is at Johnson's Ranch, it's the first time those 17 people had ever been reunited in 174 years. That's a huge responsibility, and we intended to fulfill it. Yeah, I mean, you really bore witness you know, to, to, the, to the original team uh, in just an extraordinary way. Um, and, and yeah, you mentioned, you know, obviously the pandemic it's on everybody's mind. It has been for, you know, months, almost this whole year. Um, certainly a factor when you consider, you know, the danger really of what you were doing, um, being out there. But as you were running through that list of names, I'm just tallying up the thousands of hours that those people cumulatively, um, have, have spent time out where you were, they know exactly where you were. Um, I can imagine if there was an issue that, you know, they would, they would have been able to handle it. So that was um, obviously an incredible amount of foresight on your part and, and, and being able to do that still. I, I want to hey, give hey, Greg, let me give you a little insight on day two, you know? Oh yeah. Just, oops, sorry. Yeah, no, go ahead. I guess Tim. Um, <laughs> um, so, you know, the first day went pretty smooth. We got into camp at a reasonable hour just before dark and we were camping out in the snow outside this guy's cabin day two kind of turned into a mess because it snowed all overnight we were pretty much in clean snow the whole day then we had about a hour and a half of miserable white thorn but since uh, craig and those guys couldn't get the truck to the camp that we wanted to we had to camp down at a lower spot uh, craig drove up there and provisionally checked it and then had just a pucker moment trying to get down this road which is on the shady side of the mountain had you know, four to six inches of snow on it so we camped down in this kind of lower spot overnight. It was pretty cold. We all, we like, like Elka said, when, when you're in the camping in the summer, there's not a whole lot to do after dinner other than go to bed. So we did and got up earlier because we had some mileage to make up, but the crew would, we'd pack up everything but the tents. And when the crew went to break down the tents in this place called Tunnel Mills, they couldn't get the tent poles apart. So they had to take a propane heater in order to heat up the tent pole so they'd unfreeze enough in order to bend so they can put all that stuff away. And then when we got to Iowa Hill the next, Stay. All the tents that got into the pack were still frozen. Luckily enough, we were able to stay at the people's 
uh, park there and lay everything out and dry it out. But yeah, th that night was very cold and Craig and uh, Scott had to improvise just to get the gear back in the bag. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah, I was, I was thinking on that first night, I mean, you got the snow, you got some of the authentic feel of the original party, like, you know, dealing with, dealing with snow, dealing with some pretty cold conditions out there. I'll do a little, a little thing here, Craig. Um, so one thing I wanted to mention, yeah, that, that was so funny about the tent poles being frozen. That was crazy. Our crew did so much. I do want to mention one interesting part of the trip was on day four, we're running, we're coming out of Colfax. We're kind of on a high. We're seeing lots of fans. We're talking to people on the side of the road. We'll come about two o'clock. We realized that we, we've run past Bear River High School. We can't camp there and we don't have permission to camp at the elementary school that we thought we could camp at. So we have no place to stay. And we are on the side of the road at the intersection of Highway 49 and Wolf Road. We're at a, I think like a, a super duper puppy wash place or something. It's getting cold, it's getting windy. We don't know where we're staying. So we're making dozens of phone calls and people are springing into action to find us a place to stay. And that means having four people camp in your backyard. Well, Travis found a person, a couple other people found a person, but we had a very good trail friend, uh, Sarah and Tom Tadlock, who we had passed previously that day, about a mile before. She was happened to be out in this area by her house that she never is in. And she saw us going by, Elka had just texted her and she couldn't believe that she could see us. And we're cheering and we're waving. And Elka calls her back as we're sitting on the side of the road and says, Sarah says, I feel so badly. I didn't offer anything earlier. And Sarah goes, you know, Elka says, well, actually, there is something we need. We have no place to stay. <laughs> <laughs> Sarah says, of course you can stay in my backyard. And we descend upon Sarah's gated community with our sleeping on the ground, our fire pit, our food and our crew. And Sarah takes us in. And I'm telling her, well, this is the part in the journey where the Native Americans um, were probably killed for food. And it's really hard for me. And she said, do you know that I'm registered Native American? And I was like, you are? She said, yeah, I'm a registered Native American. And I told Bob, he goes, of course we got saved by the Native American. You know, of course, <laughs> our story, our crew is that Sarah Tadlock takes us in and feeds us and allows us a place to sleep and takes care of us on our last days. Uh, much the way the um, the American, the Native American Indians took them into Johnson's Ranch. So Bob said it was once again, karmic. I don't know if you have anything to say, Elka. Well, I'm, I'm just, I'm just so glad that you brought that up uh, because I'm so, so grateful to them. And that seemed to be like all along the way, there were, there were angels, like great things that happened because that, that same day we got permission to pass through another area and met some really wonderful people along the way in in that area as well so that just it just kept going forward beautiful morning after that i mean everything just lined up perfectly yeah, and, so much and because because we because we stayed at that particular uh, location um tim and i and i think i think i think elka and maybe jen as well we decided to sleep out under the stars that night. Um, the weather was conducive to it. And well, Tim and I woke up kind of simultaneously for a variety of reasons we'll get into later, about 3 a.m. 
and the sky was lit up with stars. And of course, this all started for Tim and I when we ran, read Daniel James Brown book, Under Indifferent Skies, Stars Above. And we're laying there and uh, we didn't really have to say anything to each other. We knew exactly what the other person was thinking. And while we were thinking, here we are under these indifferent stars above, a shooting star went across the sky. Um, we took great notice of that. We both saw it. We never would have seen it if we hadn't been at the Tadlocks and decided to sleep out under the sky. Mm. And I, I mean, it sounds weird for me to say it now after you just said that, but I was going to say before, the stars just aligned for you guys so many times. <laughs> they literally did then, I guess. <laughs> so that's uh, just. Yeah, and just, uh, just to, uh, to uh, clarify Jen's note. We were all hanging out at this place called the Soggy Doggy. That's where we were <laughs> at this dog wash called the Soggy Doggy. And we're waiting there. And that's when Jen's husband and kids uh, came and rescued us with we because we had talked to him earlier. said, really, we don't really need anything but a Coke. Okay? <laughs> we haven't had a Coke for four days. Can we just get a Coke? So here Travis and the, and the kids roll in and they're like energized with a bag of Cokes and a little pizza. So there you go. Hey, pizza and Cokes at the Soggy Doggy. How do you beat that? Hey, you know. <laughs> Saved my life with that vegetable pizza. It was amazing. Not much better than that. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I, I had on my list of questions uh, that I intended to ask earlier, but we started talking about other things, but now that you brought it up was um, just in terms of the permissions you needed to to go through certain areas, obviously North Fork, you know, no issue there. But as you got down closer down the hill, had you made some prior arrangements? It sounded like some things had to be done sort of on the fly. Uh, can you just talk to, talk to us about some of the special permissions? And then also at the finish, you know, a very kind of limited number of people there, um, you know, solemn moments there, uh, and just sort of talk about that as well. Go for a tweet. Well, I'll do the high parts because it, uh, it was kind of funny. We were making trail adjustments till the last day. Part of that was because uh, it's hard. People weren't really getting the story until we actually tried to explain it to them. And then uh, it was funny. One of the ladies towards the end she goes, oh, I'll let you through. You guys are like celebrities now. We saw you on TV last night. So, <laughs> but to make a, the one part, we like the night before we were going to go. I don't know whether Bob told me in the morning we were driving up the Truckee, but it was literally in the last day. There was a piece of private property out near the Royal Gorge Ski Resort. They, they had given us permission other than we had to sign a waiver, which was no big deal. They were very accommodating because uh, we had to go right through that property. But we found that another small piece that was going to get us out to Donner Pass Road was private. So Luckily, Bob and I had scouted this other trail just on one of the weekends we were up there. And luckily, we ended up having to use it. But we went right through what I call Chaz Town, right? You guys know Chaz Shea, what he was doing over the year sure. up there by Kingvale. And so rather than being able to use what we call what was known as Troy Road on our map, it's it's a it's a private road that goes into a, a, a house that's way over on the other side of the mountain. But uh, rather than being able to use that, we just kind of took what off trail there's a trail there but it was well under snow but the good part was is Chaz and some other folks had marked it in the summer for to get from their little campground outside of Kingville up to Cascade Lake so we found a few ribbons and were able to use that it was a really fun section of the trail a lot of downhill and fresh snow so we kind of had a lot of fun there and uh but that I mean we were literally making trail adjustments away from private property there and then when we got down to our last day, we actually had to go through three different properties after I had called another gentleman whose property is absolutely right smack on the trail. 
And I had found the property owner through uh, sleuthing that Bob and I had done, called him on the phone and he said, no way, I don't want anybody on my property. So we got kind of a mixed bag of folks on that, but primarily most of them were really accommodating. Once we were, if we were able to explain the story to them, usually they figured it out and said, hey, this, this sounds like it's a cool thing. And by the time we were all done, uh, we had that. But yeah, that was one of the trickiest parts of the route was making sure that we stayed um, you know, off of private land because there's quite a bit of it, particularly towards the end. Oh yeah, yeah. And John, Johnson's Ranch, uh, which is uh, Johnson's Ranch, where we finished, is private land as well. It's on an estate, a very large farm, and it it has gone through a number of owners over the years. And the current owner is very pro history, thank thank goodness, and is working with the uh, Wheat Wheatland uh, Historical Society. And we had a phenomenal contact in Bill Holmes there. And he 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 got he got us the permission to be able to come onto that property, and then end end our journey literally at the spot of the Adobe home where the seven survivors of Forlorn Hope were brought. But that is not something that's publicly available. So again, it was a a, a series of just good luck and and, and good good people. Uh, making way for something like that. And of course, needless to say, after five days, it was exceptional and, and very special for us to step on that property and follow uh, the rutted. We, we were right in the wagon train, 100 wagon trains a day for two years straight. You can imagine how rutted this property is. We walked right down the middle of that and then headed, turned south. Uh, and when we turned south, it went straight what was then the Bear River, it's been relocated and right there was that Adobe home. I think all of the hair on all four of our bodies just stood up. Mm. Jennifer, Elko, what, 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 what was going through your minds right at that moment? I'm gonna go first, Jen. Things started to hit me as soon as we were coming uh, down, see, I think it was, um, Gosh, about two hours before the finish or so, coming down from Camp Far West Road, where you could you dip down in the road toward the edge of the lake, the the north side of the lake, and for the first time, and I had never even been to Camp Far West until Sunday, so this was all new to me. There was a gentleman that had kept following us from, gosh, several miles back, and uh, his name, gosh, escapes me right, Martin. 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 Yes, Martin. So I was talking to Martin. And I said, where exactly from here is Johnson's Ranch? And he pointed to it. He pointed to the trees. And that's when it really hit me. And, you know, the we were basically ahead of schedule at that point. It was a long day. I think our last day was about 26 miles. But um, we were we were ahead of schedule. So it, I really started at that point to to really calm down. And it just hit me like a ton of bricks and tears just started coming down. And I thought, my gosh, Elka, you, you still got a, a little ways to go, get it under control. And then we saw the monument off that we, we went off our course and went over to check out the monument in the, in the T post that documents that area. And we sat there for a bit, um, took in some calories and, and Jen was walking around and found some artifacts that had been, dug up and just laid out some old horseshoes, some old uh, wagon parts. And it just, it all just really came together for us. And then we cut across 
the lake bed there, made our way around toward Johnson's Ranch. And, and again, just that whole final mile, we were carrying the cards of the Forlorn Hope. I couldn't stop the flood. I, I could not stop probably for the last, I don't know, half hour or so, just tears streaming down, just the weight of what they had gone to, gone through to get there and finally arriving at that destination. I just felt like I was part of them. It was totally unexpected to me. I didn't know how I'd feel, but I was overcome. Yeah. Understandable. She said to me, she said, Oh no, I'm, I'm, I'm crying already. <laughs> she, said, <laughs> she was just tears streaming down her face and we had a couple hours to go yet. Um, but she, yeah, it was really, uh, it was very, very emotional for all of us. I do want to be a little irreverent here and say that cutting through the various private properties on the last day, <laughs> there was a moment where uh, we had to go, we didn't have the key to a lock on a certain fence. And so one by one, we had to climb up on a chain link fence. One person would have to pull the gate as hard as they could to make an opening. And we would have to squeeze through sideways and plop out on the other side. And that was how we were gonna get over. And so we all went and only Tim and Bob were left, but Bob didn't take his pack off enough. <laughs> and we couldn't push him through the gate. <laughs> so a really funny moment where we're pushing Bob through the fence and Tim's, Tim's pushing and I'm pulling the gate. And I think Elka's probably taking a picture of us because she's so good at that. <laughs> uh, but a really classic moment for Bob because I think Keith got it documented as well. Nice. Which was the hardest moment was getting Bob through the chain link fence with his box still on. So, there you go. <laughs> so, but, but my my emotional part of that is that um, I actually held it together uh, longer than I expected to. I think that was because we had so much distraction going up. Had cars. There was some wine. Um, someone had stopped to do a little Donner Party wine with us. That was a little distracting. There was a lot of um, cars going by. But as soon as we got onto the, the uh, wagon tracks again on Johnson Ranch, as we came up over the hill and I saw our family and friends, very small gathering, they were silhouetted in black against the sunset, which was a glorious sunset that night. And I felt very strongly that I wasn't seeing my family and friends. I was seeing a mix of people from the Donner Lake, uh, people from Forlorn Hope who had died, people who had survived Forlorn Hope but were still spirits, and perhaps my family. They all merged and became one. It wasn't a funeral looking thing. It was more like you're coming into the presence of something much bigger than yourself. And I felt like 1846 and 1847 and 2020 combined into one time frame, and then I felt very overwhelmed, and I started to ugly cry. But mm. I had my cards in my hand, and I couldn't cry. I couldn't wipe my tears, and um, I just tried to really still myself and think, "It's okay that it's all these spirits. It's okay. Uh, they're all safe spirits, and they're they needed us to finish our our trek in order to be at peace." And then they had a lot of things to say to us, which I couldn't hear right then. And I'm hoping that I can go out there uh, later next week. Bill is going to give my family a tour of the ranch. And I'm hoping to spend some quiet time there and ask my children what messages they can hear. 
um, from the forlorn hope because I, I think there's a lot of things they want us to do still. Yeah, oh, that's such a great story. Um, it's just, <laughs> it chokes you up just thinking about it. I wasn't even there, but I saw, I can't remember if it was on the Facebook page or on one of your personal Instagram accounts. There was a series of photos, but then there was also a video of two of you walking into the sunset on those wagon tracks. In It was just an it's astounding sight to see that um, and thinking about those original people, you know, going that same, you know, following those same tracks, you know, to, to, to salvation, essentially. Uh, so, so great. That was on yours, Elka. Yeah. I was double shooting with a GoPro and my iPhone at the same time. <laughs> yeah. Well, you did a fantastic job of just showing kind of that final few steps to the end and, uh, anybody that, uh, can get out there. We're going to include everybody's Instagram accounts and, you know, every, every resource we can on the, on the podcast show notes, I'm sure. Um, yeah, obviously we've gone over time. There's so much we could talk about. I, I think we've hit a lot of the really uh, good high points. We've understood a lot about, you know, the emotion and the meaning behind all of this uh, for all of you. Um, you know, one of the things that, you know, and we're sort of moving towards wrap up and we're going to get to um, audience Q&A. But one thing I do want, I want to touch on um, that you mentioned, Bob, today in an email was um, you've really uh, coined a new term, which is history trail trekking. And do you want to talk a little bit about that? Well, yeah, thank you. Um, one of the things, you know, when, when Tim and I conceived this, it was just a couple of guys that have been trail running for 40 years looking for something different to do. And, and he and I both and, and Elka and Jennifer, you know, we've all done these adventures just for fun. We just look for something interesting. And this was one of them. And we really thought the forlorn hope um, path trail had to have been already in existence. We're just going to find it, map it out and go do it. Um, that, that evolved very quickly into having to create the trail. And of course, that's taken a long time. And, and we weren't sure where that would lead us. But what's happened is we really enjoyed the craft and art of learning how to do proper research. And in that, we were introduced to so many people in history and history buffs and people that just love to be outdoors and love to combine all kinds of uh, aspects of, of whether it's discovering trails or it's uh, being expert in history or being academics or, or being teachers. And all of those groups of people that um, were not necessarily trail runners, but cared about what we were interested in and we cared about what they were interested in broadened our world. That then led us to really understand and start to show appreciation for the forlorn hope themselves as people. And then the realization that what they had, had accomplished was absolutely phenomenal. So there were all these various phases that we went through. And um, at the end of it all, we thought, well, I don't know what this is that we're doing, combining history with trial running, but it is something um, exciting. And it's not necessarily a one-time thing where it's just about the Donner Party or Forlorn Hope. There's thousands of opportunities around the world where you can go off in your own backyard in your region and, and discover and find things that are historically significant and then go outdoors and experience it firsthand. So what history trail trekking really is, 
is taking history and bringing it to life by doing history. And we hope one of the things that is an outcome of this is that we'll create a website someday that is called History Trail Trekking and encourage other people to go out and do what we've done. Because it really, um, I, you know, Tim and I, as we walked uh, along the, the wagon train trails, uh, we looked at each other and said, so, you know, what do you think? what's going through your mind? And I'll let Tim tell you what he told me, but um, it, it, it's pretty profound. Better tell me what I told you, Bob. <laughs> <laughs> well, what we said to each other was this may be the most significant outside of getting married oh, yeah. and having, oh, yeah. it may, it may be the most significant thing we've ever done. And coming from a guy like Tim Tweetmeyer, who has, you know, he's, he's a hall of famer. In, in our world, um, that's saying a lot. Yeah. What was the impact for you then, Tim? Yeah, it was, uh, you know, I'll echo what Jen and uh, Elka was saying, you know, I, I, I'd already been out to the ranch cause I was lucky enough to go out there with Bill Holmes, but, um, early on, but yeah, I mean, I had my moment out in that meadow too, even though by the time I got to the Johnson's ranch sign, I had already been bawling my eyes out the minute I got into the wagon rut. So yeah, that was uh, pretty emotional. Um, but the, what, what's been really cool for Bob and I, what started out as this kind of, you know, read a book and go figure out where it went has turned into much bigger things. Uh, for instance, you know, we moved on from finding the trail to really trying to get into the heads of the people in this story, and then trying to be able to understand what they went through. And now we've, you know, and then we were exposed to other great people that we've now, I, I hope, consider friends, you know, the Bills and the Bills and the other people that have helped us along the way. And it's been a re really rewarding and fulfilling for us to be able to learn from these folks and, you know, be able to take what they already knew and apply to what we do. It was a perfect match of, you know, we love being outside running and being out in trails, e even the more remote, the better. And then being able to tag along with the history aspect has been phenomenal. And, and it's funny because every time we go to the next step of this little journey, we find another thing we want to do. You know, Bob and I were talking several weeks ago and Jen and, uh, you know, Elk and all of us have been already doing this. Jen, Jen had her son's class in as a uh, Zoom call where she talked about the Donner Party and the Forlorn Hope and tried to educate them on some of this history, right? I mean, it's not it's a story of us doing it, but it's really a, our, our conduit to, to expose what is really a great American history story. And so, you know, we want to continue on that next step with our website and, you know, create an educational piece of it where we can go out to different levels of the education world and whether it be, you know, fifth grade kids or college people and go, Hey, here's a story. You guys should know a little bit about this because it, it's just knitted into the fabric of, you know, America's going West California history and everything else about just overcoming obstacles and uh, you know, doing what you need to do for your family. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. And so anybody that hasn't already visited forlornhope.org, uh, please go there. There's a wealth of information there. You can read an account uh, you know, of the original party, um, just moving stuff. I mean, you're, you're just, you're just not going to be able to believe it. It's, it's, and, and the team here has obviously researched and, um, you know, spent the time in the field preparing and then successful execution of, of this amazing emotional, uh, uh, journey, uh, to, to, to honor the people that were, you know, out there in that terrible winter. Um, uh, we could go for hours, you know, <laughs> but I know that we, uh, we do have to wrap up eventually. Um, 
Is there anything uh, that anybody that would like to, uh, from the team, just uh, some thanks or anything like that, that you just want to call out special for anybody out there? I just have one thing. I It's maybe not my place to say, but Bob, would it be appropriate to let people know that one of the end results we would love to see is uh, something, something to fulfill Bill Holmes's dream of seeing a museum or some type of uh, monument to, to celebrate in Wheatland, the accomplishments of Wheatland. Uh, is that an appropriate place to talk about that? Next steps? Yeah, well, yeah sure, Jen. I think one, one of the outcomes um, that we hope to, to be able to use the Forlorn Hope Exhibition for is to bring um, visibility and awareness to the importance of, of blending history with progress. You know, we, much of the Forlorn Hope Trail, of course, has been blocked uh, by progress, you know, whether it's a reservoir or a home or, or roads or uh, pipelines, et cetera. It's understandable. But, but you know, we, we must have a balance between preserving our history and recognizing it and doing those things. So many of the uh, historical societies uh, fight hard to, to grab back uh, some of these lands or establish monuments and or parks to uh, bring awareness to um, this historical land or the stories that are in our midst. Uh, Wheatland is one and we've had others reach out to us in just the last few days asking for help in maybe establishing a trail or access uh, or egress to a particular area to put a monument or even in Bill's case, uh, to, to, to eventually uh, put in a state park in or around near Johnson's Ranch. So that's one of the derivatives, I think, of uh, history trail trekking. Thank you, Jennifer, for bringing that up, which is the cooperation between the trail running world and, uh, and the historical world. Um, there, it's a natural one-two punch, and, and we hope to be able to, to use the uh, the awareness to to help all of these uh, uh, future endeavors. Very good. Uh, well, we have a little game we came up with, I guess, if we can transition to something slightly lighthearted at the end here before we uh, run into some audience Q&A as well. Um, hopefully that's not too abrupt of a transition, but, uh, but we wanted to get a little bit of a sense of the team dynamic as well. Um, we've come up with a few questions here for people. Um, now Tim's video is not working. So I think, Oh, he might be back now. So oh. we might be okay. I think we can see Different you now. Camera. Different camera. All right. Looking good. <laughs> looking good. It's always the it people. We got to like operate on the fly, right? <laughs> All right. Great. Well, Jessica, do you want to take it away? Yeah. So we're going to do a little, what I have coined trailmate trivia. You guys oh, are boy. with each other. So I'm going to rattle off some questions and you guys are going to write who you think the answer to the question is. And you guys are going to flip them when I say three and we'll see who is the most voted for <laughs> team member. So the first question is who took the most pictures? Uh, <laughs> uh, that was a gimme. Okay. One, two, three. <laughs> Come on, give us something challenging. Okay, all right. <laughs> okay, this one's a little bit different. Who was usually the leader? Okay, one, two, three. 
Elka says Tim. Jennifer says Tim. Bob says Tim. Tim says we're winning. We're winning. Tim Is this like right? We win a prize. Um, you guys can come on our show again. That would be another prize, right? <laughs> I'm the most impatient in the group. That's why I was out there. <laughs> it's just um, a trait of mine. I can't just seem to get rid like of. <laughs> <laughs> Who got the coldest? Mm. Oh, that's easy. <laughs> One, two, come on, tweet. Three. All right. Elka <laughs> says me. Jennifer I voted Elka. <laughs> All right. Even split there. Even she wore split. the most, she had the most clothes on. <laughs> <laughs> It was Bob, but he was so brave. He never said a word, but I know you were very cold. Oh, he did. He did. That second crossing of the North Fork, we were all pretty frozen. I think it took Bob the longest to thaw out, even longer than me. It took yes. me to the top of Stephen's trail. Oh, That's yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. so brave about it. He won't say a word, but you can tell he's just very... <laughs> I could feel your coldness, Bob. <laughs> and then um, who talked the most? I think I know, but <laughs> okay. One, two, three. Flip. Oh man! He says Jen, 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 Jen <laughs> across the board. <laughs> and then, who fell or tripped the most? Oh boy, man down. Oh boy. Man down. <laughs> And if you have a story, go ahead and give us a story. It's two people for sure. Okay, one, two, three. Let's see it. Bob, Bob and Tim, Bob, Bob, Bob. What happened, Tim? <laughs> what happened? Uh, what well, didn't Elka, happen? You hear Elka go, man down. <laughs> yeah, so that was a. Uh, down yeah that's the white thorn yeah the section of white thorn jen and i were about i don't know 15 or 20 yards ahead of elka and bob so and, and there's no trail there's no easy way to go you're just trying to find a less miserable trail but about every five minutes in there we were in there what an hour and a half at least all right here's elka man down is he okay is he gonna get back up i think bob would stand up and he'd have you know snow dripping off his head and then, and then yeah. wherever Tim went in the white thorn, I would see him fall off boulders. He'd slide down 12 feet and I go, you don't go that way. And I'd go yeah. around. Don't follow him. He's an idiot. He was <laughs> everything just falling. And then in the North Fork, he was waiting so long for us to cross that he was pretty cold and he was ready to go, but we wanted one more pitcher oh, yeah. who, who had helped us and waited for us down there. So he nicely came back down and, of course, slipped on the rock and fell very hard. Didn't complain about it. But, yeah, Tim, you took a big one on the North Fork and you didn't yeah. um, you didn't complain at all. Hey, but, Jess, Jess, yeah. mm -hmm. can I ask one trivia question before we go? There's one more, and I think you know which one it is. Let's have it. <laughs> all right. Last question. And then Bob. Here, I'm putting up the answer before the question. This is like Jeopardy. <laughs> Oh, geez. Who snored the loudest? Oh, yeah. Of course, Tim's going to say me. I said Scott. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We have some footage. Me? What? No, that was Tim. It wasn't me. 
I don't know. Is that a bear? <laughs> Sounds Did like a Blair Witch movie. Of a bear? <laughs> Listen. <laughs> Hear that? Hey, I've got a I got a funny Jen story for you if you have time. That's not me. <laughs> oh, I didn't know that was really you. Oh my gosh, that was so awesome. <laughs> punked. Tweet has been punked. <laughs> I've, I've got a funny Jen story that has a has a um a, a tip for it for all you runners. Shoot. Can I tell it real quick? Yep. So, so we climbed to the North Fork and we're, we're headed down this road uh, called Elliott Ranch Road. It generally just kind of skirts the top of the canyon until we get over to the paved road at Iowa Hill. And Bob had mapped this just off of mapping. We hadn't actually researched this part of the route and we are obviously not on the road we're supposed to be. But it's no big deal. We're kind of headed in the right direction anyway. But as we're going along, you know, we're looking at our Gaia's and, and, and Jen's a really good navigator. So unlike the rest of us, she, she brings her map and compass. So she's got her map and she's got it leaning up against her chest and she's got her compass out. She goes, we're going south. I don't know why we're going south. We shouldn't be going south. We need to be going west or northwest. And I'm going, Jen, I see the moon. We're kind of headed straight where the moon was five minutes ago. The moon's to the west. I think we're good. No, no, no. We're headed south. Well, what had happened was she had her compass so close to her body and she had stored to her iPhone in her bra such that her iPhone was emitting magnetic emissions and her screwing up her compass. So when she moved the compass away, she could actually see the direction she was going. So, so note to self, if you're going to navigate, don't store your phone in your bra. Okay. Just, uh, just a tip for the ladies. Never mind. Never mind. It was my phone in my bra. Don't worry about it. I put it in my back pocket. <laughs> this is so good. I'm going west again. <laughs> We're back on track. Jen's took her phone out of her bra. We're good. <laughs> Modern problems. Yes. Yep. <laughs> and Bob, did you have something? No, that was it. You, you, that was uh, the story, uh, man. They both got you, Jen. I just wanted They're to be both. sure we cleared the air about, about <laughs> who who that noise was keeping everybody else up in camp. And I had it in stereo between Scott and Tim. <laughs> Glad we got that footage. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that was fun. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Uh, Jen, uh, Jessica, I'm sorry. Um, do you have some audience questions? I have one that I don't think that we've gotten to. Um, I guess anyone can take this. It's after you completed this tribute, Trek, what factors do you think drove the forlorn hope to keep going? Yeah, I, um, I think you did that real well, Jen. Uh, yeah, just, I just, I decided that I still don't know how they survived, but I know why they survived. They loved their family and they just weren't going to give up until they put the wheels in motion at Johnson Ranch. Thank you. I don't think I have anything else. Mike, we're good. We're all good. All good. Well, thank you all so much for joining us uh, again. Like, so soon after you finish too. I mean, I know that there must be tons of reflections still going on. You're still processing things and, and just to take the time out, um, you know, during that process to talk to us is, is just so valuable. And I'm just so glad that you were able to kind of communicate the story out to everyone that's on this call. So many people on this call tonight um, and everybody that's watching on Facebook and, and through your website, which is just an incredible resource, as I mentioned, um, your Facebook page, Forlorn Hope Expedition, anyone please go there and, and follow that page 
And like you said, I mean, we'll all be, I'm sure, following along, finding out what's next in the journey, because the journey is not over. It's really just beginning, it sounds like. Uh, and we're all so excited to see where it goes. Uh, so thanks again for everybody that joined us live tonight. Uh, we'll obviously be posting this as a podcast episode uh, very shortly, uh, hopefully in time for Christmas. And uh, <laughs> uh, we would love it if you would go over to our, our uh, Facebook page, The Mile 99 Interview, and give us a like and follow there. Uh, we have a uh, website, themile99interview.com, where you can go and subscribe to all of our podcast episodes. You can rate us. Uh, find out when all of our, uh, our next episodes are coming out and all kinds of good stuff there. Uh, we also have Instagram, uh, the mile 99 interview, follow us there. We're always trying to post really fun, uh, exciting little community posts there. And, uh, thanks again to the team. It's been great. Uh, we can't wait to see what's next. So thank you all have a great night and we'll see you on the trail. Bye-bye.